get into today's message. Um, just with a little background, last week we looked at verses 23 through 34 of the Gospel of John. In that passage, John the Baptist continues to try and point ahead to the coming Messiah. The only time he refers to himself is when he quotes from Isaiah chapter 40, verse 3, and he calls himself simply a voice. That's it. Everything else John the Baptist says and does points to Jesus. John the Baptist also gives us two names for Jesus that have endured through the centuries because they give us such clear insight into who Jesus is and what he has done. So John calls Jesus the Lamb of God and the Son of God. It's very interesting because there's actually seven titles given for Jesus in that first chapter. John loves the number seven and uses it repeatedly throughout the gospel. Um, but those are the two that John the Baptist uh, gave to Jesus, the Lamb of God and the Son of God, and they're both very important. We spent a majority of our time looking at the title, the Lamb of God, because along with that name, John adds the accompanying work. Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Folks, Jesus didn't come to fill your bank account or clear up all the difficulties in your life. He came for an infinitely higher purpose, to take away sin. If you think your biggest problem is finances or health or even family issues, then you don't understand the seriousness of sin. But, thankfully, for those that recognize their sinfulness and acknowledge their infinite need and trust Jesus Christ as the only one that can meet that need, as Elir has, Jesus comes walking toward you in your storm-tossed vessel, undaunted and unaffected by the chaos of the waves of the sea, ready and able to bring you safely to shore. And the moment we trust him, he gives us a helper, a comforter, a counselor, the Holy Spirit of truth, who will empower the disciple of Christ to endure the trials of the storms of life while we rest in him. He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And we would be wise to lay our burden of sin on him, for he is the only one who can bear it, and receive in exchange his righteousness, without which we will not see God. That brings us to today's text. In a message I've simply entitled, The First Disciples, we're going to look at John chapter 1, verses, pardon me, verses 35 through 51. Today will bring us to the end of chapter 1, so I'm quite, uh, quite thrilled that I've made it all the way through one whole chapter. So at this rate, in 26 years, we should be done uh, the Gospel of John. Anyway, I'm, I'm sure that things will pick up as, as time goes on. We spent quite a bit of time on those first five verses in particular, but let's look at today's text, John chapter 1, beginning in uh, verse 35 to the end of the chapter. This is the Word of God. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, behold, the Lamb of God. 
The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned, and seeing them following, said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say, when translated, teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now, it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, How do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? <laughs> you will see greater things than these. And he said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, Hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we want to thank you this morning for this beautiful and powerful text that by your grace we can spend just a few moments looking into. This morning we ask that by these words we would be encouraged and moved and convicted and uplifted and challenged to be to walk in the steps of Jesus, to be more like our Savior. We thank you for them in Jesus' name. Amen. The, this final section of chapter 1 is often viewed, I noticed as I was going through different commentaries, as somewhat pedestrian, ordinary by many commentators. But is the Apostle John just writing these words as a filler? I don't think God inspired the author to just use filler in his inspired word. And I hope by the end of today's message, which will be a little bit long, I must warn you right off the get-go, I'll try and go quickly. But I, I don't think, I'm hoping by the end of today's message that you will agree with me that these are extraordinary words. There are some wonderful lessons we can take away from this short text. Let me just give you a brief overview of what's happening in this text before we look at them in detail. Two of John the Baptist's disciples begin to follow Jesus 
after John the Baptist announces Jesus as the Lamb of God. We might call this discipleship through preaching. Short message, certainly shorter than the one I'm giving you right now. John the Baptist preaches a message. Jesus is the Lamb of God. There's his message. The disciples follow. One of these two, Andrew, he returns to his brother, Simon, Simon Peter, and tells him that they have found the Messiah. In response, Peter begins to follow Jesus. We might call this discipleship through family. Then Jesus goes out and finds a man named Philip and says simply to him, follow me. We might call this direct discipleship or discipleship by fiat. Philip goes and finds a friend, Nathaniel, and encourages him to come and meet Jesus, whom he declares is the Messiah. Nathaniel, skeptical at first, comes and meets Jesus, even in his doubt, and becomes a disciple. We might call this discipleship through friendship, or maybe even discipleship through doubt. The entire account is is a treatise on the variety of ways in which Jesus extends his grace so that each person can become his disciple, his follower. Jesus didn't reach out to you the way he reached out to me. And he isn't going to reach out to your neighbor the way he reached out to you. As Christians, we make a grave mistake if we think that everybody's encounter with Christ must be the same. The one thing that must be consistent is, is that it is an encounter with Christ. But some come through the witness of a friend or family member. Some come because they have a direct encounter with Jesus of Nazareth in what we might call a Damascus Road type of experience. Some come immediately with no doubt, like Philip. Others are skeptical and they need more time and more convincing, like Nathaniel. In the end, what matters is that each of these disciples responded to the call or the invitation or the command or the instruction or whatever it was that Jesus used for each individual person. They responded and became disciples of this unique man from Nazareth. My prayer this morning is that if you have not yet responded to Jesus, that he would move in your heart this morning. And if you have responded to Jesus, that you would do two things. Remember how it was that Jesus drew you and recognize that it is your privilege to make yourself available to him to draw others. So let's look at the first few verses here, 35 through 39. Two of John's disciples follow Jesus. So John the Baptist is standing there somewhere the next day with two of his own disciples. And when Jesus walks by, the scripture reads that John is looking at Jesus. And that word looking means that he's gazing at him with some intensity. Then he again, for the second time, he announces Jesus as the Lamb of God. At this point, these two disciples of John begin to follow Jesus. One of these two was Andrew, verse 40 tells us. But the other disciple remains unnamed in the text. 
This other disciple is almost certainly the author of the gospel, John. We'll encounter John the Baptist one more time before we're done in this gospel, but for the most part, from here on, he fades into the background and does so intentionally. These two, it says, follow Jesus. The text does not specifically say, but the implication is that these two disciples follow Jesus with John's permission and even with John's encouragement. It's almost like John is saying, hey, look, my sun is setting. Follow that one. Follow the Lamb of God. Very humble thing to do. This, of course, should be the aim of every Christian. Avoid gaining a following for yourself, but rather get others to follow Christ. So it seems these two were following Jesus at a bit of a distance. Maybe they were shy. Um, I think John, the author, almost certainly was a shy person. But they were following Jesus at a distance when suddenly Jesus turns around and asks them, what do you guys want? And we'll pause on this question for a few moments. A person never follows Jesus anonymously. Jesus doesn't make that option open to his followers. You may try to do this. Keep your distance. Try to stay at arm's length. Stay in the shadows. But I've got news for you. If you are going to follow Jesus, he isn't going to leave you alone. He will smoke you out. I love what one commentator said regarding this verse. Jesus is going to discover those who are discovering him. There was a wonderful book written by a German theologian, originally written in German, of course. <clears throat> His name was Rudolf Otto. He wrote the book in 1917, beautiful book, called uh, Dies Heilige, The Holy, sometimes translated The Idea of the Holy in English. In this book, he describes something which he didn't know what to he didn't know what to call it so he actually created a new word he called it the numinous simply put the numinous is the experience a person has when they encounter the one who is holy now this is not necessarily a salvation experience it can be but it seems to me that some people have an encounter with the holy that they reject and discount and walk away from almost unchanged. Others of us that have already uh, been followers of Christ for some time, we might even have a special encounter with the holy even long after we were first saved. And I found particularly in my own life when I'm going through intense struggle or trial. Having said all that, one of the things Rudolf Otto says about the encounter with the holy is that not only are we aware of that which is holy, but there is a deep sense that that which is holy is aware of us. This is what sets this experience apart from the awe of seeing, say, a beautiful, uh, majestic mountain or a wonderful sunrise or a sunset. We don't get the sense in those things that they're watching us or that they're aware of us. But when we have an encounter with the holy, not only do we get that beauty, but we get this deep sense that the holy is also aware of us individually. 
We may be moved by our view of the mountain emotionally or in some way, but we never get a sense that the mountain is moved emotionally by us looking at it. But it's not so with Jesus Christ. When we have an encounter with Jesus Christ, I believe part of that encounter is a recognition that he is aware, and not just aware, but intensely aware of us. Otto goes on to say, and I find this so powerful, that during that encounter with Christ, a person is deeply conflicted. We are drawn to Christ because of the beauty of his holiness, but we are at the same time repulsed by our own sense of how sinful, how unholy we are in his presence. This kind of thing is described many times in the pages of Scripture, but probably the clearest example is found in Luke chapter 5, verses 1 through 8. Let's read that passage. So it was, as the multitude pressed about him, Jesus, to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret, and saw two boats standing by the lake, but the fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. Then he got into one of the boats, which was Simon's, and asked him to put up a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the multitudes from the boat. When he had stopped speaking, he said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let your nets down for a catch. But Simon answered and said to him, Master, We have toiled all night and caught nothing. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish, and their net was breaking. So they signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Look at the reaction of Simon Peter. He gets out of the boat. He goes to where Jesus is standing. He falls down at his knees and says to Jesus, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. Why didn't Peter just run away? Because he was so drawn to the beauty of the holiness of Christ. He had this great conflict that there was no other place he would rather be than at the knees of Jesus, and yet his heart's cry was, depart from me because I am sinful. The beauty of Christ's holiness overwhelms the depth of our sinfulness. But because we find in Jesus one not only able, but willing to forgive all our sin. There's nobody like Jesus. So, that is what I think we are seeing in our passage today. John and Andrew are drawn to Jesus to follow, but they are hesitant to follow too close. Aware of them, Jesus turns and probes their heart with a question. The same question I think he has for every person that encounters him. What do you want? What are you seeking? These are Jesus' first recorded words in the Gospel of John. 
and they are important. <clears throat> I am so thankful that Jesus didn't send these two back to John the Baptist. He doesn't tell them to go back and learn more from John so that they are more completely prepared to follow him. His admonition is, if you want to learn more of me, follow me. If you want to learn more of me, follow me. So that's that great question. What do you seek? I actually find the reaction of these two disciples to Jesus' question a little bit amusing. I actually think they were totally caught off guard. And maybe perhaps I'm reading too much between the lines, but uh, Jesus turns to them and asks them, what do you seek? Well, they were standing there. It's like, well, now what? <laughs> what, do I, what do we say now? Like, I'm at a loss for words. So let me tell you a little story. There is a fundamental rule of parenting that any parent who has ever had a son needs to remember. Here it is. You might want to write this down. Never take your son into the Lego store. You, you can jot that down. Your son is going to find things that he needs. An hour before you went into the store, he didn't even know these things existed. But now he needs them. He will not be able to breathe or eat or anything without those things. He needs them. Here's the key lesson I have learned from this experience. And this is hard. To, to, this was very hard for me to wrap my mind around, but I think it's, it's absolutely true. We don't seek the things that we desire. The things that we desire seek us. Without getting into a lecture about comparative religion, I'd like to give you an illustration about this. In the 5th or 6th century before Christ, there was a young man named Siddhartha Gautama, and he was born to a very wealthy royal family in Tibet. Through a series of encounters with the sufferings of the world, this man turned his back on his family and his wealth, and he decided he was going to pursue what he called enlightenment. After many years of pursuing this higher path of living, the Buddha, for that is how he came to be known, came to the conclusion that if a person can eliminate desire, he is enlightened, and he has found the path. It's one thing he didn't account for. That is simply not how God created man. God created us to have desires, to have goals, and to have pursuits. So we would look at the teaching of Buddha and say that he is trying to use a guillotine to cure a headache. It's effective, but the cost is high. For the follower of Christ, Jesus asks us to examine our desires to see if we can find him in our desires. Ultimately, Jesus is the one we seek because we are created in his image, the image of God. So any desire we seek, or rather has sought us, through which we cannot see the Lord Jesus Christ is a desire that we must set aside. We will never find fulfillment in it. 
This is precisely why a husband can, not will, can find fulfillment in his work. Because through his work, he can see the command of Christ to provide for his family. This is precisely why a wife can find fulfillment in keeping a home. Because through her work, she can see the command of Christ to nurture and care for her family. She can. I'm not saying she will. I'm saying that it's possible if she so chooses. Same with the husband. This is precisely why to bring this whole idea to something that impacts all of us every day. This is precisely why socialism fails, for example, from the home that provides an allowance for children rather than having them work for pay, to the local government trying to figure out housing solutions, to the federal government pouring somebody else's money into every perceived problem. Socialism uses a guillotine to cure a headache. Christ is our desire, whether we acknowledge it or not. And we will not find rest until we find our rest in him. Here's the question I have for you. Is he seeking you out this morning? Is he seeking you out this morning? Come and see, Jesus says to these young men. Come and see. So Andrew and John asked Jesus, Rabbi, teacher, where are you staying? It's kind of an odd question, right? They're following at a distance. Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? Uh, where are you staying? They are too timid to ask if they can stay with him. But they don't want or cannot turn back either. Jesus responds with this profound invitation. Come and see. This is a beautiful invitation. And I think we would be wise to memorize it and use it. The world is filled with people that need to have an encounter with the living Christ. And sometimes we beat ourselves up over how can we possibly introduce them to the Jesus that we know? What if they ask questions to which I don't know the answer? What if they're hostile toward religion in general and Christianity in particular? When Jesus was asked where he was staying, he didn't go through a long treatise on his messiahship and how he fulfilled all these Old Testament prophecies and what John had taught them in days past. He could have. At other times in his ministry, he did use these types of um, teaching methods. But in this initial encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, he says to them, come and see. The Lord Jesus Christ, the holy. The invitation for us can be very simple. Come and see. You want to get to know the Lord Jesus Christ? Spend some time with him. John and Andrew spent the rest of the day with Jesus, probably 10 in the morning till the end of the day. And I think it would be safe to say when we look at the rest of their lives that from that day forward, their lives would never be the same. Verses 40 through 42, Peter meets Jesus. I've given Peter his own section of the sermon here because of his importance uh, as a disciple and as an apostle. 
By the time John wrote this gospel, everyone would have been aware of who Peter was and what he had all done. So this is why I think John includes this encounter between Peter and the Lord here. Peter was bold, outspoken, and zealous almost to a fault. If Andrew was an evangelist, and he was, because every time we encounter Andrew in John's gospel, he's telling people, come see Jesus, come see Jesus. Chapter 6, chapter 12. But if that is what Andrew is, his brother Simon, his brother Peter, is a leader. They rhyme. Peter is a leader. Right, Pete? That's right, yeah. Andrew finds his brother, Peter, Simon at the time. Andrew has obviously, by this point, been deeply impacted by Jesus. The first person he seeks out is his brother, Simon Peter, to bring him to Jesus too. By the way, the word find is used in this short text we read five times. Again, I think this is a beautiful beautiful picture of how the gospel works. When we have spent time with Jesus, it becomes natural for us to want to bring those to whom we are closest to Jesus as well, usually family members. We see a little bit of Simon's personality here through Andrew. Andrew knew Simon. They grew up together, probably had some fights. Right, brothers? Any boys in here? They probably fought. Knowing Peter, they probably cut off his ear. But Andrew has a sense of the kind of introduction that would get Simon's attention. He tells him, we found the Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one, a man of power and a man of authority. Well, this gets Simon Peter's attention. Right away, he goes out to meet Jesus. The next thing we read is that Jesus looked at him. And this, again, is the word looked that means gazed intently. It's almost like intense eye contact. It makes me wonder what went through his mind and what went through the mind of Christ as he gazed intently at Peter. And then Jesus says these words, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas. Cephas, sometimes pronounced Cephas, but when I looked it up this week, yeah, the correct pronunciation is Cephas. I find it a little bit funny that Jesus tells Simon that he is going to change his name to Cephas here. Not just because of what Cephas means, but because of what Simon means. Simon is a very common Jewish name at that time. It's still common today. It means to hear, to listen, a hearkening. It's like Jesus is saying to Simon, that name doesn't suit you at all. You're not one who is prone to hearing and paying attention. Isn't that what we learn about Peter? He was happy to speak up, but listening was not his strong point. So Jesus tells him he will be called Cephas. And I think this is where my mom got the term, uh, you listen like a stone. You're not a listener. You're a stone, Cephas. And that's what the word means, a stone. It's an Aramaic word. And then it, uh, the text goes on to remind us that in, in Greek, uh, the word Petros means stone, and that's where we get the name that we're most familiar with, Peter, a stone. It's not a huge rock like a foundation stone, but it's a stone, smaller but made of pretty tough stuff, something you might pick up and throw. 
Jesus isn't giving him the name yet. This is a prophecy. You shall be called Cephas. It's going to happen in the future. Well, that set off a series of events, transformed the world. Final part of our text this morning, verses 43 through 51. First person who talks about is Philip. This story of Philip's encounter with Christ is, of all these encounters, the most direct. It may have been that Jesus had encountered Philip prior to this, but the text never says this, nor do, the any, nor do any of the other Gospels give any indication that these two had met before. Jesus simply walks up to Philip and says, follow me. There are those people and those times in which Jesus simply confronts a person directly and demands their complete commitment. Although most people come to Christ, say, through a family member maybe, or a friend or a preacher, some people have this kind of direct encounter with Christ. It might be through reading the Bible. Or another example, there have recently been hundreds of stories of Muslims in countries where they don't have access to the scripture. And these people are having encounters with Jesus through a dream, after which they immediately convert out of Islam into Christianity, even at the risk of their own lives. This is similar to the encounter Saul of Tarsus, who would later become the Apostle Paul, had with Jesus on the road to Damascus, which we read about in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 22. I think maybe the most powerful lesson we can take out of this encounter that Christ has with Philip is this. There is no one outside of Jesus' reach when it comes to his saving work. He might use you or me. He might use his word directly. He might use a vision or a dream. I don't know. But praise God, his arm is not so short that he cannot reach even that person you have been praying for all these years. Keep praying. Keep praying. Philip, on this command, has an encounter with Jesus and his life is transformed. What does he want? First person he thinks of, his good friend Nathaniel. <clears throat> the story of Nathaniel is possibly the most striking of all these encounters. I found it the most striking. Philip, having spent a day with Jesus, recalls a friend of his whom he believes need to meet, needs to meet Jesus as well, Nathaniel. When Philip goes to Nathaniel, he introduces Jesus as him of whom Moses in the law wrote. That's very important. He talks, he says the prophets too. But I want you to keep that in mind. File that under important. Philip says to Nathaniel, we've met the one Moses was writing about. That's important. File it, file it under important. Calls him Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. This was Philip's testimony of Jesus Christ. This is the one that the Old Testament talks about all the way through. And Nathaniel replies, Nazareth? You said Jesus of Nazareth? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, are you kidding me? Nazareth? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? 
When you know a little bit about the geography of this area, this question makes more sense. Nazareth was a tiny little town, maybe about 300 people, and it was insignificant in terms of location, economy, agriculture, anything. What Philip said to Nathaniel would be like me coming to you and saying, hey, I found the next Prime Minister of Canada. He is the one who's going to deliver us from the wiles of the liberals. And you say, really? Where? And I say, Fort Fraser. <laughs> now, nothing against the folks from Fort Fraser and the people that live there. I've met many fine people from Fort Fraser. But it's not really the first place we think of when we think of someone rising up to a position of greatness in a large country. So right off the bat, Nathaniel is skeptical about Jesus. Nazareth? <laughs> I don't think so. How does his friend, Philip, respond to his skepticism? Oh, I love this. Come and see. Come and see. This is the same invitation Jesus gave to Andrew and John when they were following him from a distance. Come and see. Philip is like, I know it's not what you're expecting, Nathaniel. By all accounts, Nathaniel was a godly man. I know this is not what you're expecting, but you have to come and meet him. Then make up your mind. Instead of arguing against Nathaniel's prejudice, Philip simply invited him to meet Jesus for himself. And so Jesus reveals himself to Nathaniel in a special, special way. When we first read of this account of Jesus and Nathanael, it can strike us as kind of odd. Why would Nathanael become so convincingly and dramatically committed to following Jesus Christ simply because Jesus had told him that he saw him sitting under a fig tree? There is plainly something much deeper going on here, and we all get a sense of it when we read this text. And I think that if we look at the story just a little more closely, we will see what it is. Look at the first words of Jesus when he sees Nathanael. Behold, he says, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. If you recall from the Old Testament, Abraham had a son whom he named Isaac. Isaac had a son whom he named Jacob. The name Jacob means supplanter, layer of snares, and deceiver. Not a very flattering name at that time. No offense to anybody named Jacob in here today. I don't think that of you at all. It's become a name through the great patriarch. But that's what the name meant. <clears throat> and when we look at the early life of Jacob, that's what we see. He lived up to his name. He was not the kind of guy you would enter into a business deal with. But later on in life, Jacob had a transformative encounter with the Lord. And at that point, the Lord gave Jacob a new name, Israel, which can be translated in many different ways, but it carries with it the idea of he who wrestles with God. He who wrestles with God. 
Let's just read the verse where the Lord changes his name so that we get an idea of, of what's happening here. And it occurs in Genesis chapter 32, the writings of Moses, verse 28. And he, the Lord, said to Jacob, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. Why? For you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. So with this in your mind now, let's look at Jesus' first words to Nathanael again. Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no deceit. Nathanael would have had Genesis 32, 28 ringing in his ears. Behold, one who is of Israel, not one who is of Jacob. One who has wrestled with God, not one who deceives. One who has had his name changed. Nathaniel is shocked. I would be shocked too. In whom is no deceit? Lord, I think you have the wrong guy. But Nathaniel is shocked, and I'll tell you why in just a moment. Hang on to these thoughts. This is, this is hard, but it's important. So Nathaniel asked Jesus, how do you know me? He's already suspicious. Have you ever, how many of you have cell phone? You're on Wi-Fi. And you talk about uh, purple dragons one day. And the next day, the only ads that come up on your phone are about purple dragons. And you're like, this thing is listening to me. This thing is listening to me, right? You, you've all been there. You know, it's like you and your wife talk about, well, it'd be nice to have a new sofa. All the ads that come up are about new sofas. And you're like, this thing's listening to me. I don't care what anybody tells me. This thing's listening to me. Nathaniel's got this sense right here. Somebody's listening to my thoughts. That's right away. How do you know me? And it is Jesus' response to this question that transforms Nathaniel. Jesus says to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. And Nathanael on the spot is completely convinced that Jesus is the son of God, the king of Israel. Why? Nathanael was sitting under the fig tree. This, by the way, is where Jewish men, godly Jewish men, would often go in those days when they wanted to contemplate the scriptures. It was just a traditional thing for them to do, to sit under a fig tree. It's almost like a, a home or a place of prayer that they would go to. And the scripture doesn't tell us this, but John implies it so strongly that we cannot miss it. Nathaniel is thinking of the life of Jacob. He's contemplating what Moses wrote about Jacob and Israel. And then when he encounters Jesus, Jesus, in essence, says to Nathaniel, I know your thoughts. And I know where you were when you thought them. And furthermore, I am the fulfillment of the scriptures you were thinking about. And seen in this light, verses 50 and 51 of our text just fall beautifully into this place. Jesus answered and said to Nathanael, because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these, he says. Just because I can see your thoughts, I know what you're thinking. And then Jesus gives him the lesson. 
Again, remember, Nathaniel was thinking about Jacob and Israel and all the things that were happening. And Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God descending, uh, sorry, ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Where does that story come from? Jacob is running away from Esau. He gets to a place um, that he renames Bethel, the house of God. Why does he name it that? Because when he went to rest there, he had a dream. And in his dream, there was this great ladder touching heaven and touching earth and the angels of God ascending and descending upon it. And Jesus Christ knew what he was thinking about 10 miles back down the road. And then Nathaniel's response makes perfect sense. Who else knows our thoughts? Our deepest, most intimate thoughts. And Jesus transforms Nathaniel's life right there. It's an absolutely beautiful, beautiful story. So this brings us finally to the three lessons we can carry from this text. I've been trying to do this as I have time. I don't have time, so I'm going to do it anyway. Three lessons that we can carry from this text into the days ahead. They're very short. They're very simple. Number one, the core message every Christian needs to bring to the world about Jesus is this. Come and see. Come and see. The best defense against any critic or slanderer or person cynical about Jesus is this. Come and see. And the deepest comfort for those going through illness or doubt or trial or loss when your ship is storm-tossed, the deepest comfort are these words of Jesus. Come and see. Powerful, powerful invitation. And I'll close with that. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we're so thankful for your word. Even these, some, these passages that are sometimes glossed over. If we just take a few moments and look a little more deeply, they can transform us because of the power of your spirit opening them up to us. So thank you for the light of your word. Thank you that your spirit works in the hearts of people to reveal Jesus Christ to us and that Jesus Christ reveals the Father to us. So as we go from this place, first to our baptism and then um, to share a fellowship and a meal together, I pray that by your spirit you would go with us and that we would do so in the light of your word and the fellowship of your spirit and fellowship of one another because of what Jesus has done for us. In all these things, we ask in the name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.